Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast, a podcast about theology, culture, and discipleship. And this is episode 81. If you haven't already, please subscribe wherever you get your podcast and leave us a review. And you can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or visit us at our website at thetwocities.com. On today's episode, we're discussing evidence and disagreement with Dr. Greta Turnbull, who is Assistant Professor of Philosophy at Gonzaga University. Team members from the two cities on the episode include Dr. Amber Bowen, Dr. Grace Emmett, and myself, Dr. John Anthony Dunn. So Amber and Grace, what were some of your takeaways from our conversation with Dr. Turnbull? I really enjoyed something she said right at the end, actually. Um, and we have quite a sort of wide ranging conversation, but um, having talked about her work on on the philosophy of science and particularly paleontology and then thinking about how that might link into apologetics conversations um she said something like uh, i sort of want apologetics to stop the war mentality this idea that you have to kind of win an argument and you kind of bowl people over but there's not much sense of what's actually best for that person and um if necessary sort of disagreeing well with them um so i thought that was a really helpful sort of framing and tied together our whole conversation And her area of research focuses on evidence and what counts as evidence and looking at um, different types of evidence and how people carry evidence and what is persuasive to them. um, What are some underlying things that are influencing them that are just true for for everybody in different ways. And so bringing that idea into this conversation about apologetics and how do we pursue apologetic arguments and what are some unhelpful ways of doing that versus more helpful ways of thinking about that. I also really liked how she made distinctions between like the intellectual questions that we might have and the existential uh, issues that we might be be dealing with as we process big questions like the goodness of God, for example. I think for me as well, I just found her so articulate and as someone who is not philosophically minded at all, um, was really able to kind of track what she was saying. And I feel like she just articulated it really well. So I really appreciated that. All right, and here's our conversation with Dr. Turnbull. Thanks so much for joining us, Dr. Turnbull. Thanks so much for having me. It's so great to be here today. So how about we begin by hearing a little bit about your research on evidence and disagreement? Yeah, so um, I think I've spent the last seven years thinking about this stuff. Um, I uh, did some of my my PhD was mostly at Boston College and then later at Baylor. Um, And during that time, I was really wrestling with a lot of different questions I had about um, uh, like sort of where I fit in philosophy or those sorts of things. And one of the things that was very clear to me from the early times I joined philosophy, as I'm sure Amber um, probably had a similar experience, was I came from a very conservative Christian background. And then I was around a lot of really, really, really smart people who disagreed with me about virtually everything. Um, And it was a really transformative season of my life because all of a sudden I was in disagreement all the time. And I am not, I'm an Enneagram six. I don't like to disagree with people. It really, really drives me up the wall. Um, And so all of a sudden I couldn't get away from this disagreement, right? And there were, it became that I was disagreeing with people who I really cared about, right? It wasn't these abstract people in my head. Um, there was disagreements with people who I really respected, people who I loved, people who I cared about. And all of a sudden I had to think about, oh my gosh, these people, this, these really smart people, people who are way smarter than I am, uh, disagree about things that I really care about. And we both seem to be having our eyes open 
women. We both seem to be really careful in the ways that we think about these issues. Um, and we both seem to be, all seem to be very good at communicating about it. So what, what do I do with that fact, right? What do I do with that? I can't look away from it. There's no way, even in my Enneagram sixness, I can't hide from the disagreement anymore. How do I deal with that both personally and as a philosopher? Um, and so one of the things that came out um, very quickly, as I started thinking through these issues, was that um, I really was concerned about how we were talking about what evidence we disagreed on the basis of. So um, a lot of times we evidence is such a big term in philosophy. It's such a just like, I feel like it's a bucket we throw everything into and then we sort of like close the bucket. We don't want to always fully understand what's going on there. It's very messy. And I think that's because a lot of the times our evidence, like even how I believe that it's going to rain today, there's a whole lot of different evidence that goes into that. And some of it is just my gut intuition of what it's like to live in Texas, right? And I can't really communicate that very well. Um, and so I think part of it is just our evidence. A lot of our evidence is very messy. And the more I thought about our evidence being messy, the more I realized that there were a lot of things that we were assuming about disagreement in philosophy and outside of philosophy. I really want my work to be mostly useful for people outside of philosophy. Um, we were assuming a lot of things about evidence that just weren't true. We were assuming it was not nice and came packaged or was neat and made sense. And uh, the more that I thought about it, the more that I understood it, the more it became very messy. And that's kind of where philosophy lives is in the mess, I hope. So yeah, that's, that's, the, that's the bigger picture for it. Can you say a bit more about what messy evidence is? What does, what does that mean in this context? Great question. Yeah. So um, a lot of times uh, I think we tend to think um, like a, detect a detective murder novel if you're an Agatha Christie fan. We're like, the, you know, Hercule Poirot is working with, you know, this testimony from this person who was at the garden and this testimony from this person who was at the stable and like, how do we put them together and who's lying? And we sort of have this nice sort of list in our heads where we think that that's the way the world works. But in reality, I think it's so much trickier than that, right? A lot of our evidence, I think, comes from things that we might not even be able to articulate or write down. So I, um, I've realized this recently because I had a horse riding accident a couple of weeks ago, and I've noticed that ever since then, when the wind picks up um, out here in Texas, my whole body tenses, and I'm sure something terrible is going to happen because that happened right before my accident. Um, and my body interprets wind as evidence of terrible things happening right now, right? And I don't think I could have it took me about a week or two to realize that's what I was doing. That was what my brain was telling me. Um, and I'm really lucky that I figured it out because now I really can actually enjoy uh, a windy summer Texas day. But I think a lot of times life doesn't actually give us hints about what we're using as evidence that easily, right? Sometimes it just seems obvious to us that something's the case, or it seems obvious to us that something provides us good reason to believe something. And we might not be able to articulate that to ourselves or much less to other people. And sometimes um, what I discovered on a very windy Texas day recently was we might disagree about what is evidence, right? My, I was tensed up <laughs> because it was a windy day and my friends were just having an enjoyable an enjoyable afternoon in the Texas sun. Um, and so we might, it's not just that um, our evidence sort of like isn't articulable, we might actually disagree about what it is or what it, what, what makes up our evidence. And if that's the case, then my goodness, we've got a lot of problems ahead of us. <laughs> I love how you include evidence as being also tacit too. A lot of times we think about evidence, like you said, the Agatha Christie novel, or here's the fingerprints that I've dusted for, or, you know, here's the graph or here's the charts or kind of the empirical data. But uh, there's so much, so many 
things that influence the way we move around in the world that are just like felt and indwelt in our body. And a lot of times we don't realize how much that impacts us and our whole orientation and how we see things and interpret things, you know? Um, and a lot of times we think about those things as almost being contaminants to our ability to mm -hmm. rat, to reason properly. And so what I need to do is try to strip those things out because, oh, my body's just lying to me, but my brain needs to override my body to be able to help me like know the truth better. Um, but yeah, how do you think about that in, in ways that we actually come to know things through tacitly indwelling the world? And then what is that? Because that obviously then like puts us at odds with other people who tacitly indwell it differently. So how do you begin to work through some of those things? Yeah, excellent question. Uh, this is almost like we're like bordering on the question that got me into this whole mess originally, which I started wondering about the Holy Spirit and emotions. I started having a lot of questions and I'm still getting to that. I'm working on that a lot this this coming year um, because it seems like what you're saying with the tacit things, right? That involves something like close to an emotion, right? Or something about like a feeling of being in the world maybe, or a sense of how I am embodied in the world or all those sorts of connections. And um, my one of my very favorite philosophers, Catherine Elgin, out at Harvard, she uh, has this view that emotions actually can give us um, insight into specific characteristics, right? Um, about the world, they can sort of give us information or evidence in a very particular way. And it doesn't mean they're always reliable. Like my sense that imminent danger happens whenever the wind kicks up here uh, is not a great, that's not that's not a reliable, um, a reliable piece of evidence that I'm picking up from the world. Uh, but Catherine thinks a lot of things, like um, a lot of times people have um, sort of sense tacit senses that some people are trustworthy and others aren't. Now we know those things can go poorly, right? We can have bad trust meters or good trust meters, but a lot of times it can be actually pretty trustworthy, right? Or our trustworthy meters are trustworthy. Uh, they, we have an ability to sort of sense whether someone is telling us the truth or not. And a lot of times we're right, right? If we're, um, we can sort of train that parts of that part of us. Um, and that, like you said, puts us at huge odds with other people, right? We come in, we come sometimes talk about this as like a gut reaction, right? But I come into a job interview and I think, oh, wow, that candidate is excellent. They're going to be a perfect fit. And um, and here's all my reasons why. And then my colleague says, oh, I don't think they're going to be a perfect fit. Here's all my reasons why. And we kind of have similar reasons. And yet something is different with how, you know, there's a big piece of evidence that's clearly not shared or the way we're situated in the world. Um, and I think this actually frees us instead of making, you know, it makes things more messy, like I said, but I think it frees us to be able to say, oh my gosh, there are all these different people who live in the world so differently and who are sort of tacitly interacting with the world so differently. And we can actually recognize the disagreement and gain insights from each other's differing perspectives or different ways of being in the world that give us this sort of tacit evidence. So this is super interesting when we then think about our series topic, which is apologetics, because, well, I mean, and, and you can share with us some of the reasons, some of the connections that you're making as well. But what's immediately coming to me is we've talked about this before, how really many decades ago, the apologetic question was, you know, is there enough empirical proof for the resurrection, right? It's this empirical data to combat hardcore skepticism. Um, is there, is it logical? Is it rational to believe in God? Those sorts of things. So a lot of those kinds of arguments or questions have really fallen by the wayside now. And more of the pressing issues are, is Christianity just like, is it ethical? Um, does it oppress women? Does it oppress minorities? Is it, is it a white man's religion? Is it, you know, is it ideologically oppressive? Those sorts of things. And what's interesting about that is those kinds of questions really do give more weight to those sort of tacit and dwelt non-articulatable 
kind of that embodiment, right? So like if my experience in the world is such that I've encountered Christianity only in terms of, you know, hardcore patriarchy. So I'm going to have like reactions against it that I can't even fully articulate or explain, but they're visceral or they're very powerful and they're in my gut, right? So how, how would we begin thinking about apologetics given that that's a very real thing? Yeah. So I hopefully this is the direction you're thinking of. But uh, one thing as I was thinking about how I think about apologetics that came up very quickly for me was, uh, you know, I am and I still like I can't believe I say this out loud, but I'm a professional philosopher. I think about like arguments about who whether God exists, whether God is good for a living. Um, And I, uh, you know, I uh, realized maybe I think in the last five years that I was a pretty long term abuse survivor. And that was a huge professional crisis for me Um, because it was a personal crisis. Obviously, there was a huge personal crisis. But as I was recovering from the abuse or beginning the recovery process, um, I suddenly found myself like really struggling with my job because I had this sense of like, I am the person in the church who's supposed to have like, like you're saying answers to those kinds of like questions that we're wrestling with in the church right now. Um, I'm the person that I think God is called to be that, you know, that one of those voices in the church. Um, And I know all of these great arguments about, you know, like the goodness or justice of God. I'm the person that you come to. And I don't find any of them satisfying in this moment, right? Like in this, in the season of suffering, none of them are giving me the answers that I'm looking for. I'm not sure that they were intended for that. But it does seem like um, if I was going to go to my pastor and say, this is what I'm struggling with, I'm struggling with believing in the goodness of God in the face of this evil that I've suffered. um, One thing he could do is send me to like, well, there's really good evidence for the goodness of God, or there's good evidence that Christianity is just and involves a deep commitment to genuine justice, right? Um, And, but, but I, every time I played that tape in my head, I would think, but then he would just tell me, tell me to talk to someone like me. And I don't have right here. I am the one who's struggling with this at a very deep level. And I don't really believe that God is good in this moment, or I don't really know that Jesus is trustworthy or that there's a commitment to justice wrapped up in the Christian tradition, especially in the context of things like spiritual abuse. And so um, one thing that eventually over much time and much existential crisis, the thing philosophers are best at, um, I realized that I was thinking about or I had the way had been talked uh, talked about those kinds of arguments or those kinds of discussions in the church was that I knew the logical problem of evil or I knew the um, you know evidence for the resurrection of Jesus or I knew the responses all of the replies and objections to Alvin Plantinga's version of you know the compatibility of free will and evil right I knew all those things um, but those things weren't really intended to address the existential or pastoral problem um, of injustice and suffering and evil and I think that problem this is something my good friend Nick Colgrove over at Wake Forest is working on right now, like those problems actually are separate. And so if we, I think apologetics has a really key role to play in the church, right? I think it's an important thing, but I think in order for it to play that key role, we need to be clear about what it's doing, what, which problems it's addressing and which problems it's not addressing, right? And it is not addressing um, the problems I was facing with the existential problem of evil and the aftermath of abuse, but it was, it could help us, you know, have some ways of responding to is the could a good God be logically compatible with like 
lots of evil in the world, right? Um, but I think a lot of times, if I was, I thought at one point, if I'm confused about this, but I'm sure that lots of people are confused about this because this is my day job. Um, and realizing, yeah, real, getting to a point of realizing, oh, there are genuinely, like there's sort of intellectual problems and then there's these existential personal problems. And I think one of the hard things about this is that people are much more willing to admit that they struggle with the intellectual problem, at least in my experience, than they are with the existential problem. Like I can't tell you how many people, when I say I'm a philosopher, they're like, oh, I wanna talk about this problem that I'm concerned about, right? Um, because I'm sort of safe, right? I talk about things in your brain. I don't talk about things in your heart. I don't get too close to your soul or things feel vulnerable. Um, but often I feel Feel like when I have those conversations with my students or on an airplane or whatever it is, what I'm really dancing around is not the intellectual problem. <laughs> They're not actually really struggling with the intellectual problem a lot of the times. They're struggling with the personal or existential problem. And that's great, but that's not where I'm trained to serve them, right? I'm trained to send them to a licensed psychologist who can help them with that or a pastor or a ministry context that is set up to do that. And so I think apologetics gets stronger when we are sort of like, you know, more aware that these are, there are more problems of evil than just the logical problem of evil or the evidential problem of evil or the problem of the historicity of the resurrection, all those th sorts of things, because it's able to do what it does best better instead of like letting sort of providing. I always think about it as like if I in those years, I felt like I was going an open wound and I was asking someone to put a math problem solution on top of it. Right. It was the wrong. It was the wrong solution to a very real problem. And it caused I think it caused greater suffering rather than less uh, because it was just so clearly an ineffective tool. Yeah, I kind of want to think with you a bit about that, because I think you're right that apologetics has, it focuses more on like the intellectual problems, right? And, and a lot of times it can be sometimes tone deaf to more of the pastoral problems. Um, but one of the things that I find curious, though, is by nature of, well, in terms of what apologetics is supposed to be, right? It's supposed to be a very personal thing. It's supposed to be helping people come to faith right? Which is a deeply personal thing. Um, and so that kind of raises the question of, okay, well, what is faith and how do we fall into faith or how do we get into faith? Right. And how would an enterprise that, so, you know, you could say, well, let's just recognize that there are these two separate lanes and let's let apologetics stay in its lane, that it's just purely intellectual, right. And it's got its limits and it's got its strengths when it stays in that lane. But if apologetics as, as a project is supposed to help bring people to faith, and that is a personal whole life commitment kind of thing, like that's when you're getting into the forms of trust that you're talking about more of that tacit indwelling the world kind of way. So then is it really effective in terms of its own aims if we just keep it in an intellectual lane? Or is it better for us to try to imagine what it might be to actually bring those things closer together, like bring the personal, the subjective and the objective, we could call it, I guess, um, to break down that binary, if you will, and, and what would it look like? Th those are the kinds of things that I'm thinking, and I'm, I'm wondering how would you re react to that? Sounds very Kierkegaardian, Amber. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm sure. very phenomenological, too. Yes. <laughs> very shocked. Um, yeah, I think, I mean, I think it can be, 
I've, I've asked lots of people, you know, in that, in that, when I was in that sort of wilderness, I started asking people like, okay, when did you find, when was apologetics helpful for you? Or, or like, what, what, what sort of need did apologetics meet for you? Because I'm, I'm not meeting those needs for, it's not meeting those needs for me in this moment. Um, and I think one interesting thing to me was that as I started asking people those questions, a lot of them said it was, apologetics was useful sort of in the, like, right post-conversion as they're figuring stuff out. So it was sort of like, like, like if you think of conversion as a journey, then it's like at the beginning of the journey um, instead of just a decisive moment. Um, but a lot of them said there was this sense of like sort of heart commitment and then, and then a lot of them intellectual commitment followed and everyone's different, right? I was definitely the opposite of those sorts of things. Um, but I think there's a way of saying like, I like how you're saying like, yeah, we're whole people, right? Like we are like, we're not just brains in bats floating around, right? We are whole people, we're embodied and those things are connected. They're not just like sort of pull, you know, we can separate them sort of conceptually, but they're also just like in incredibly connected things. Um, so I think part of, probably part of my guess would be the solution is having a sense of like, this is part of what it means to enter into like faith is like, knowing that you're going to have moments that are, or seasons even, that are more like affective focused or will focused or um, those sorts of things. And that part of that journey is going to be incorporating those intellectual things. And I'm not sure, like, I think it's much more rare. I have a couple friends in academia who sort of came to faith solely because they were convinced by the intellectual, um, like convinced by an intellectual argument. But those are a few of my friends in academia. And I think if I was going to find them anywhere, I would assume I would find them here. Um, and so I think it was for a lot more, more people, it was a very much more sort of like you're saying, more gradual together, um, together sort of journey that sort of have different phases. And a lot of the college students I work with, I'm sure you guys have had similar experiences. They seem to, the intellectual component seems to take um, long, like it, it seems to be a, a later stage for a lot of them, partly because they're just growing and the, you know, the intellectual components of their life are sort of like forming literally in their brain during those years. Um, but for a lot of them, I feel like it's sort of a, it tends to be like a uh, phase after some of the like heart affective stuff. But that's just, again, my personal anecdotal data of students I've worked with. Well, it makes sense too. I mean, it's an age old faith seeking understanding kind of thing yes. um, where sometimes you have to, you have to look at something from internal to the position of faith to be able to see it in certain ways and then consider, okay, what are the conditions of possibility that this is true? You know, like those are, those are good questions. Um, and those are even personally driven questions, right? Like you're like, I'm staking my life on this. Right. And I kind of want to know, like, is this structurally possible? Is this rationally possible? Those sorts of questions are good. Um, but yeah, I think, I think that's a helpful way to think about it. I think for a lot of people as well, sort of coming to faith, particularly in a more kind of emotive sense, often happens with some sense of religious experience. And I'm wondering kind of where that fits into this framework for you and how you sort of think about that, particularly in terms of evidence and, and what that means within faith. Oh, I'm asking so many questions about that right now. I actually talked to my pastor about it today. So um, I have a lot of personal and professional questions that are hopefully going to get somewhat addressed in a paper I'm writing right now. But um, I think it's so hard, right? Because I was talking to a good philosopher friend of mine recently, and I was saying, 
you know, I feel like there've been moments in my spiritual life where I've had these experiences where I felt like, oh, something changed, right? Like I got closer to God or I understood a feature of God's personality that I didn't before. Um, but there's also been moments where I thought I'd had those experiences and they turned out to be very untrustworthy, right? Like uh, they were, you know, or they were just sort of like, think they were wishful thinking, right? Uh, my good friend, Dr. Charity Anderson at Baylor talks about that a lot, right? Like I wanted it to be true that um, I was going to get to go to Disneyland tomorrow. And so I had, I prayed and then suddenly I had this sense of like, God's going to make it happen, right? Um, and it seems like you can, it seems really hard a lot of the time. And I think it's something that comes with spiritual maturity, but not perfectly along those lines where you are, you have moments of, oh, I have this religious experience, whether it's sort of a minor one or a major, like Paul on the road to Damascus sort of experience, right? They're, they come in all sorts of shapes and sizes. And it's this very strange and I think good thing for us that we can have those experiences. I think that they can like lead us into deeper understanding of the faith. They can lead us deeper into faith. And yet we also need other people around us to sort of help uh, help moderate like how we're interpreting those experiences, right? So there's this beautiful, like I am both like independent in my walk in faith and I'm also interdependent, right? In my walk of faith. And I think that's one of the things that I think religious experience is really supported by a healthy community, right? Your, experience, your religious experience can be tainted by an unhealthy community, but it can actually be bolstered by healthy community. And I think it's one of the things that is hardest when you're working in something like analytic philosophy or analytic theology uh, to really grapple with because you, uh, to my like many and dear beloved atheist friends, I, I, you know, they'll say, well, what are your grounds for believing this about God? And I'll say, an experience I had when I was 17, you know, I mean, I wouldn't take that, you know, I wouldn't take that for evidence that, you know, I, if I asked someone, what's, why is this your favorite band? Oh, an experience I had at 17, probably be like, oh, really? You know, like, that's a little bit, that's a little bit, I'm a little bit skeptical of that. And so I, I reckon, I want to recognize that that does sound a little crazy, right? And it does sound a little foreign. And especially in the way that religious experience works, we have analogs to it in other parts of our lives, but I don't think we have um, like really, really, really close analogs. And so it's very hard. I think, I think it's one of those things that I push on and Kierkegaard has helped me think through this more, right? That like, I, I am the person who wants to be able, in my friend group, who wants to be able to express every thought and feeling she's ever had. And there are moments when my friends have to say, uh, maybe some things are just ineffable and you can't. And if that's, and I think that only works if we're in a place where we can have a sense of ineffability being acceptable to us. Um, we're resisting having to analyze everything. And we're in a place where with people who haven't had those religious experiences, there's trust, there's that community trust built in where we can say, oh, I, I don't understand, but I think I, I trust who you are and I trust who you are as a reasoner. So I think it makes everything so messy. And I think that's why talking about religious disagreement can be so, so, so tricky um, because it's just not always, it's not set up the way a lot of other disagreements are, even though I have a paper arguing that it totally is. So <laughs> we'll see, we'll see what I, what view I end up with in a couple of years. That's just the life of the philosopher. Oh, right? yeah. oh, I, mean, yeah. I have this paper coming out saying this, but I might change my mind in a couple of yeah, Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. It reminds me of this um, student that I came across a couple of months ago who was at a Christian university and he came as an atheist and he's now a Christian mm. and uh, he introduced himself to me and we were talking and he said, I asked him just a little bit about his journey. And he said, you know, I got here and this is like maybe a 
20 year old, something like that. He said, I got here and I was a hardened atheist, but then I was finding myself surrounded by all these Christians who were then trying to evangelize to me. And they were, you know, giving me all of these apologetic proofs and all this kind of stuff. And he said, I eventually, after some time of being here, said to them, you know, what actually, what is not convincing me, your proofs. What is convincing me though, is the fact that you all live like this is true. Like this is a community where everybody talks about having this kind of shared experience and you live like it's true. And this is your world. Like that's actually super compelling to me. Um, And I just thought that was fascinating because that's what he was taking as like, typically we think, oh, you know, I need to give some sort of hardcore objective evidence that will prove to you and sort of make you intellectually say uncle. (laughs) Right. You know, like absolutely, I love that. Yeah. Um, but in reality, I, I think we underestimate that even religious experience and people witnessing those religious experiences—that's actually pretty compelling evidence. Well, and I think it's—I uh, think you know—I've always been on the side of like you—you you want to be in a place where, like, I think about this all the time in my job. Like, what my goal in my job is is to love my students well. That's my only goal, right? That is my main goal every single morning I wake up. How do I love my students well? And it looks so different for every single student, right? How does it, what does it look like to sacrifice for them, um, to put their needs first, um, to speak truth and grace to them? Um, Most days I have no idea and I just do the best I can, right? But that's the goal. Um, And I think when you think about it from that perspective of like loving someone and caring deeply about them, like what it looks like for each of us to love the people in our life looks so different because we have all these different personalities, right? Like we're dealing with all sorts of very different people expressing love in very different ways, receiving love in very different ways. And so I think one thing we have to be careful of in these kinds of discussions, like you're pointing out with your student is like, we can't get, there aren't, there aren't any beautiful Bayesian formulas for how to love someone, right? There just aren't, there aren't any beautiful formulas about how to be like salt and light in the world. You just don't, they don't exist. And I think that's a gift. Um, It makes things very messy, (laughs) Uh, but, but it is like part of the beauty of it is like for that student, what it looked like was like sort of living in community. And I think a lot of times that community is going to be messy and uh, difficult and good all at the same time. And that's just, yeah, that's such a gift. And it doesn't, it doesn't come in promise conclusion form. Wonder uh, following up on that, uh, what about when there are sort of rival religious communities that have, uh, you know, people living out their faiths and it's appealing in, you know, in different ways to different different people and in an apologetics encounter, that being laid out as evidence, like, well, I had this experience in this group or I had this experience in that group. I, my mind thinks, for example, of uh, Mormons who uh, emphasize this uh, personal experience that's often kind of colloquially referred to as the burning of the bosom. And 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 in interfaith dialogue with Mormons, it's often laid out as evidence, uh, this religious experience. And so I'm wondering, um, if, if maybe you could say a little bit more about this kind of internal evidence that, that is being, you know, can, can be, can be utilized in an apologetic sort of discussion or, or debate. Yeah. So I think the thing I'm going to say is going to make it more messy. So I hope you weren't hoping for a clear answer. No, no, no. <laughs> um, but, but what the thing I have defended in print that I would still stand by um, is that we do that all the time. 
um, in all sorts of disagreements. And there's this perception in philosophy, in epistemology of disagreement, outside of philosophy, in the church, all these sorts of things, that religious disagreement is kind of special on this account, right? And I've said before, like I said earlier, I think there are some things about religious experience that make religious disagreement complicated in some very specific ways. But what you just laid out is something that happens all of the time in moral disagreement, right? Like, I think this particular, like, I think um, everyone should be vegan and you don't. And then we talk about it and we kind of like narrow down our reasons. And eventually we realize that you accept veganism because of like this intuition you have about um, animal cruelty that's based in some arguments, but also has some sort of non-articulable emotive component to it. And I am not vegan because of, you know, because of my sort of like intuitions I bring to moral discourse, right? Um, and I think realizing that is scary. No, no philosopher wants to admit that things can't be put into boxes. Um, so, uh, so, or at least not in the analytic tradition. Uh, the other traditions are much more fine with it. But, uh, but they, I think it's, it's scary, but it's also so freeing um, because like you're saying in those sort of apologetics, you kind of um, circles, I think the temptation can be sometimes we need to have everything in a box, right? Because like, we need to sort of like make religious disagreement more simple or easy or clear than these other sorts of disagreements. Well, one way you can deal with that is to say, well, the other sorts of disagreements aren't actually that clear and simple and straightforward, right? So if you're not worried, most people, um, if I say, um, are you worried about the fact that you're not vegan because there are many very strident vegans in the world? Most of them are going to be like, eh, probably not, you know, like I've thought about it, but it's not going to like keep them up at night, right? I have disagreements with people about what's right and wrong. Most people are very comfortable with that. Um, and then if you can, and then if you can move the needle a little bit and say, well, are that sort of like evidence is also deployed in religious context. You don't seem to be very okay with it there. Um, then why, what, what's the difference? Like what's the disconnect? And I think most of the people that I disagree with about religious matters, um, because they're really awesome people, they're like, there isn't one I'm fine with, it, right? Like I have to be fine with it. <laughs> Um, because there isn't, there isn't this big, massive uh, gap between those, like, there isn't the sense of like, oh, we're only just deploying these internal types of evidence in religious context. No, we do it all the time. We just don't like admitting it. <laughs> um, and so we, we're doing it all the time. We don't like admitting it. If we admit it, um, then we have to give up the sense that we can sort of explain and understand and categorize everything. But I think that's something that, you know, as the continental tradition would love for us to give up anyway, so. And I think about the quest for defeater arguments, mm -hmm. you know, like that seems to be especially uh, poignant in religious or sorry, in like apologetics kinds of conversations, because it's like, I need to find the top dog argument that's just going to end the conversation. Right. And so it's, uh, I think Myron Pinner in our conversation with him calls it an epistemic standoff. Right. And I need to have like, what is the, the knockout punch that's just going to end this conversation. And so then you have, you know, well, buy my book because I'm going to give you what that is. And no, buy my book and I'm going to give you what that is. And we assume it's going to be this monolithic thing and it's going to be the 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 show-stopping point to end all points, right? Um, why do you think that we're just kind of obsessed with finding that? Is that maybe something that's maybe more culturally situated than anything? Is that something that's probably based on like maybe theological error? Like what could you unpack that? Oh boy, um, uh, that's, there's a lot to unpack. I think one thing I always, I teach freshmen every year, we read Alan Jacobs' book, How to Think, and he talks about the argument as war metaphor a lot. Um, and we unpack that together. And I feel like I teach that book every single semester and I'm convicted every single semester um, because I realize that I still do that, right? I still want to say, oh, like 
me disagreeing with someone, one of us is going to win. Like you're saying the epistemic standoff. And then like, if I lose, it's because I didn't have the right argument. The reason I lost, you know, lost the war, quote unquote, is because I didn't have the right argument. Um, and Jacobs is really, you know, and I challenge my students with this a lot. Like, is it a war? Like, and if so, wh why do you feel like you need to win it? Like what, what's, what's motivating you? And I think we all want to, you know, deep down, we all want to believe that we're right <laughs> on pretty much everything. Um, and so we want to, and we want to think that our reasons for being right are like really like something that anyone could sign on to if they were just thinking clearly. And then we dismiss everyone because, oh, you just weren't listening to me or you misunderstood me or you don't have as much education as I do, or, you know, you didn't, you weren't raised in the right kind of place so that you could appreciate the depth of my argument, right? We might not say these things out loud, but we certainly say them in our heads right um and i think one of the gifts of being able to separate out the pastoral or existential problems we're dealing with from the sort of like logical evidential philosophical problems is we can say in those conversations like oh well maybe you know i think back to my season of suffering and think if someone had been like well let me give you the knockdown you know if one of my many talented friends was like here's the knockdown argument for the goodness of god i would have been like I don't find it convincing. But the reason I wasn't didn't find it convincing wasn't because I had a defeater for the argument or because I had a new objection that no one had considered or written about yet. It was because I was at an emotional and existential level where I could not like I could not wrap my head around the goodness of God in my life. Like it just I, I didn't have the capacity for it at that time. Um, and so I think, yeah, it's I think if we could as a community of like as a church, like the church as a whole, if we could say, oh, maybe people like who aren't Christians suffer too. <laughs> and maybe people who aren't Christians wrestle with evil on a personal and existential level like we do. And maybe it would be okay if we thought that our we're not we're not aiming at some sort of argument that's going to like defeat the atheistic objection. Maybe we're just trying to like walk with people. And wherever that journey leads, that's good because that's what we're called to do is just like care for people. Um, and hopefully that not only um, helps us realize like, oh, maybe this is why my perfect argument that I found on YouTube is not <laughs> winning the day, but also um, helps us to see them like, you know, Alan Jacobs' big point throughout that book is how do I see someone as a person first? How do I see them as my neighbor? If they're my neighbor first, then do I really want to win a war with my neighbor? Well, if I live next to them, probably not. I would probably rather just live alongside them in peace, even in disagreement. Um, and Dr. Turnbull, as a sort of final question, I noticed that you sort of have research in the area of paleontology and I'm really fascinated about um, kind of how you came to work on that and how that interacts with your other research, um, particularly because this is an area that's historically had lots of disagreement and people can view the evidence in really different ways. Um, just wondering how, if that's something that factors into your research on paleontology and whether you can tell us more about that. Yeah, so thanks for the question. I love talking about dinosaurs. Um, the highlight of one of the highlights of my life was getting to see Sophie at the uh, uh, National History Museum in London. Um, and she is the most intact stegosaurus that we have. So, um, yeah, I just am like endlessly fascinated and don't really understand why. Um, but yeah, so one of the things that I get to work on is philosophy of science. And in the last maybe I would say 20 years, maybe 15, we've really in that field experienced what we call the turn to practice, which is how do philosophers work closely with the scientists? Are there things we can do to support them? Um, are there things we can learn from them that we can't learn just by sitting in an armchair talking about science? And I think the answer we've found is like unequivocally, yes, we have much to learn. Um, and so most of my research so far, um, right now I am a member of a morphology lab at Gonzaga, which has been a huge privilege um, and I'm learning new things every single week. Um, but 
before I joined that lab, most of my research was thinking about Stegosaurus and what happened. Um, a lot of paleontologists disagree about what the plates on the back of Stegosaurus um, actually were for. So some of them think that those plates were um, for the purposes of helping the Stegosaurus regulate her body temperature. Others thought that they were making one Stegosaurus more likely to track a mate than another. Um, some thought that different species of Stegosaurus would have different plate um, configurations on their back. And so one species could recognize another species via the particular plate configuration. Um, and so there was, and some people thought um, they also served a defensive purpose, right? So that's probably the one that the hypothesis that we're most, most people are familiar with. Um, and it turns out that the evidence we have for lots of things in paleobiology and evolutionary biology, we don't have a lot of evidence. Um, or what we do have, we're using computer models or um, like homologous structures in existing organisms to be able to understand that evidence. Um, and the more that I started uh, reading in the paleontology about it, the more I realized that there were people, like you said, Grace, who really evaluate those in, in paleontology who evaluate that ev evidence differently. In fact, some paleontologists will say, this sort of model provides excellent evidence for my Stegosaurus hypothesis. And then the other group of paleontologists will say, that's no evidence at all. It doesn't even count as evidence. Um, and I think we, we've been talking so far about like, this seems to happen in all sorts of other contexts, right? I recognize something as evidence. You don't recognize something as evidence. And sometimes it can be tempting for us to say, oh, that, old, that would never happen in science. Like science is the best, right? Um, but I think that's false um, and uh, it does, but I think, it, that sort of disagreement shouldn't decrease our sense of trust in fields like evolutionary biology, especially as Christians. I think it should increase our trust because we know that in the church community, we disagree about a lot of things like theology. We disagree about basic principles of theology. And we seem to be generally okay with that in a lot of ways, right? We might think someone's wrong, but we seem to be okay with it. We're not sort of all doubting the whole project of Christianity just because there's disagreements about theology in it. Um, and I think the appreciating more and more, um, for me at least, what evolutionary biologists do, how they study um, the history of species. Um, I spent last this last year studying um, really closely the history of Darwinian theory and working with a bunch of really talented um, senior seminar STEM students um, as we sort of unpacked like what was really happening as Darwin is in the social background as Darwin is working on this theory. Um, the more I appreciated that um, it's an extraordinary theory um, and it's also a theory and it's a really good one that we should put a lot of trust in because we have a lot of really great evidence for it. And as Christians, we don't ever have to be afraid of that evidence. We accuse, we're e very easily to accuse people across the aisle from us of saying, oh, you're just not looking at the evidence, your eyes are shut. And I'm very concerned that often we do that when we get into conversations with people um, who uh, are evolutionary biologists that we say, that we close our eyes and we say, oh, we don't wanna look at your evidence. We're afraid that it would contradict things we believe. Um, they're not scary. Um, they're really wonderful people. Every single paleontologist I've interacted with has been nothing but excited to work with me, excited to talk to me, excited to talk about what's going on in their field, um, and just genuinely passionate about the truth and getting at the truth about the world. Um, and they are so excited about all the things they're discovering in this just genuinely curious way. Um, so I think one of the really crucial things that I want for apologetics is that we're able to stop that war mentality of uh, it's the church versus whatever evolutionary biology 
biology is discovering because I think I've just been so um, floored in the last five years of getting to be like, you know, in the, in the audience in evolutionary biology. Um, I've just been so floored by how much it is not only it's strengthened my faith and it's made my faith um, like I feel uh, more settled in my faith because of the things I understand from evolutionary biology. Um, and I'm definitely um, thankful for the work that my colleagues are doing in that area, even as they disagree and we're processing through that disagreement together. Dr. Turnbull, thank you so much for all your wonderful insights today and uh, for, for joining us on, on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's just been so much fun. <laughs>